This morning we enter into a part of the Bible where I find it particularly fascinating because it's the last bit of time uh, that Jesus has with his disciples before he's arrested, which straight away puts uh, something different to this conversation than any other conversation Jesus has had with them. When the mob comes in just a moment in, in the narrative, when he gets lynched and it gets pretty chaotic from that time on for the disciples, as you can imagine, um, at one point when they arrest Jesus, someone flashes a sword and almost starts a fight. Uh, the soldiers take Jesus and move him around from place to place, putting him on trial. And you get the sense that even the few followers of Jesus who stick around to see what happens, they, they never get a chance again to talk to Jesus and to actually share in what's going on from Jesus' point of view from this point on because they can't get close to him. They're soldiers, there's a crowd. There's no way they can get uh, to hear what's on Jesus' mind. So this chapter that we're looking at um, this week and, and next, these are the last recorded moments that Jesus gets to spend with his disciples before he's taken. And Jesus knows it. Uh, a few chapters ago, Judas Iscariot uh, the disciple who would betray Jesus, Judas has already gone out to get the mob to bring them to Jesus and where his disciples are going to be. Uh, chapter 13, verse 21 and onwards, tell that story. And so the mob are on their way and Jesus knows this is it. In the first line of his prayer here in chapter 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. He knows. And this last bit that's recorded for us of what Jesus says is not even directed to his disciples. He's already said everything he wanted to say to them in a couple of chapters of dialogue just before. But here in chapter 17, the last thing that Jesus says, the last thing that's recorded for us is Jesus' prayer. Jesus' words to his father. And he's praying this aloud for the disciples to benefit and for us to hear and benefit so we can get an insight and to what's going on in Jesus' head. At the cusp of this crucial moment in history, just before he approaches his death on the cross. We are only going to look at the first five verses of this prayer today, and we'll do the rest next week. And as you look at these verses, Eric read them for us just before you. Hopefully I have them still in front of you. I noticed one word, one idea that kept on popping up. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 4, and you see it in verse 5. Uh, verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. And verse 4, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He says, I've glorified you, Lord. Now, Glorify me. Glorify your son. What do you make of that? Uh, we are familiar enough, I think, with people who are looking for glory. Our culture has plenty of them, whether it's on the sporting field or on reality TV. These days, we tend to glorify entertainers mostly and some athletes. Fame and renown and glory is the dream of so many would-be hopefuls in just about every field. And not just in our culture and time. People everywhere and every time have pushed themselves to their limits and given everything 
in the pursuit of glory. The ancient Greeks are probably the most glory-mad culture that I was, I'm aware of. The ancient Greek people, they had their own little word for it. If you studied a bit of ancient Greek culture, kleos, K-L-E-O-S, was everything. Glory with a capital G. And the ancient Greeks weren't talking about getting 15 minutes of fame by catching a falling baby and becoming a local hero in a newspaper. No, kleos is... Hardcore glory. The sort of glory you have to seek with everything you've got, often on the battlefield, where you actively go after the greatest and most honorable epic deeds of valor you can. You pay no regard for the sacrifices you're making, giving up your home, your family, your your life, limb and life and everything you have, because whether you live or die because of the actions that you're taking, it'll all be worthwhile as people remember your bravery and enshrine that in noble, epic poetry and the tales that are told about you. Life back then was short and the way to immortality is through glory, kleos. You live on in the stories and the legacy you leave behind. Uh, In the epic poem, Homer's Iliad, you have the legendary hero Achilles, whose own mother is the one who rocks him to bed at night, asking him to think about whether he'll he'll die young and gloriously on the battlefield and have his name live on forever, or whether he'll live a long, boring life and die anonymously. That's what baby Achilles grows up thinking. That's what young, ancient Greeks grew up learning to worry about. Am I going to make my mark in history? Or am I just going to be forgotten? Pain and even life is temporary, but glory is forever. Also, ancient Greek literature would have us believe. Uh, this is the point in my notes where I was really tossing up whether to tell you a story. Um, uh, and Julian's nodding. I, I've heard it's not good in Australian culture to tell a story about your own glory because that's a way to get cut down very quickly. Uh, But Julian wants me to tell a story. Okay. Uh, I spent a year, some of you know, working with some university students, uh, overseas students, uh, in a focus uh, overseas international group. And apparently, I I knew this coming into it, we had a camp, and what they do on the first camp as a staff worker at a university campus is that, if you're a boy, if you're a girl, you get out of it. If you're a boy, they will find a pool of water or a beach or somewhere and just throw you into it at some point in the weekend. That's just your initiation, sort of a hazing into the, the life of university campus ministry. That's what they do. If you're a girl, you get off scot-free. I don't know, you get a hug, you get chocolates, I don't know. Boys, you get thrown into water. And uh, I knew this was going to happen at some point in the weekend. We were at the beach, water's right there. And I was engaged to Joyce. Uh, I had a lot to prove. Uh, these young... Uh, university students from overseas who looked up to me, I thought, I'm not going to go down without a fight. This is going to be good. This is going to be epic. And they will retell this uh, for years and years to come. And I ran into this uh, mythic legend of myself. Um, I found a card this week where uh, one of my friends that I I was in a group I was with, she told me that's what she remembers of me. It's a a goodbye card. Where, okay, uh, I I saw a ring of these eight or nine 
legend has it there's 20 or 30 of them, uh, <laughs> surrounding me, ready to do their deed. And I, 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 I nodded to my dear wife, my fiance at the time, gave her my phone, turned around to face the music and said, let's do this. <laughs> and I ran for it um, because I didn't want to get thrown into the water. I bolted and there was a, a ton of them that seemed like they were everywhere, chasing after me, tackling me into the sand. I, I figured, actually, eventually they're going to catch me. They're going to corner me. I can't just run and run forever. And that is not a manly way to go down with your, you know, tail to the wind. No. So at a certain point in time, I thought, this is it. I'm going to turn around and just bring it on, come what may. Bring on the Brazilian jiu-jitsu training or whatever it was that her whole life had been leading up to. And so I got, I got smashed. I got uh, jumped on by these, I'm going to say, 40, 40 blokes, <laughs> ex-Singaporean military, uh, now in university. And uh, I was lynched, I got grabbed, there was probably four or five people on each of my limbs dragging me to the surf. And uh, I was thinking, actually, at this time, how about we, hope is not lost, this is, there's still an opportunity here, I'm going to play dead for a while and just relax, let them hold the weight of my lifeless corpse. Uh, and then just when they do their backswing to throw me into the water, just when they're relaxed, I just twitched every single limb that I had, pulled my arm out, grabbed some bodies, whatever, pulled them down, kicked my legs really, really hard, and it worked. So the group of people surrounded, they thought I'd given up, they thought this was going to be an easy game. Um, eventually, we crawled our way. I ended up sitting on the top of a pile of about 15 blokes uh, and running off, and uh, that was a brilliant day in, in focused international history. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> now, question. Glory forever, uh, where they sing your name in the halls. Your, your, your name is up in lights. That's, you're remembered, you're known, you're loved. Do you reckon any of that ancient Greek virtue stuff has survived and been adopted into our culture nowadays? Does that form any part of your dream, your aspiration for your life? Where you only live once, so you risk whatever you have to to make it worthwhile, right? Maybe the Greeks tapped into something very fundamentally human in our quest for significance and for eternity that resonates across culture and time. We, we feel our limits all the time and we long for being more than what we are. But that's not a problem that Jesus has, is it? So when he prays for glory, I suspect... He comes at this from a very different place to where our desires for glory stems. In the accounts of Jesus that I read, he doesn't ever act like he fears insignificance like we might. He never seems to be limited by any sort of lack of power. In the prologue of John's Gospel, we're even told from the outset that he was there at the beginning. He was the eternal God come in the flesh. And so for Jesus, he doesn't need to strive for eternity. He doesn't need to strive for significance like we might. Because for him, those things are a given. He is in very nature God. So when he prays here to be glorified, I suspect it's more to do with him wanting how glorious he really is to be seen. Father, let them see. Lift me up and exalt your son so that they will see my glory. I think that's what he's praying for. 
The time has come for the world to see just how glorious Jesus is. And this is just before they'll arrest him and they'll crucify him and Jesus will give his life to save the world. Jesus has always been great and God's always known that Jesus is great. But now it will be the world's turn to see the kind of greatness Jesus has always had. And I think that's what he's talking about in verse uh, 4 and 5 here in John 17. Verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, I have brought you, Father, glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let it be revealed who I am and the glory I have with you. Very soon the world will see what the Son is really about. They will see his perfect obedience to the Father. And they'll see his humility. They'll see his sacrificial love for the world that he'll give his life to save them. And if it isn't already clear to you what I'm saying, I'm saying Jesus is talking about the cross. That is how he will be glorified. That is how he glorifies the Father. There he will be exalted and literally lifted up onto the cross for the world to see. But to the untrained eye, if you don't know what you're looking at, the the cross with a man dying on it is anything but glorious. Because what you're looking at is a full-on execution where every shred of this man and his dignity is being taken away. The, the execution tool was designed to be torturous and humiliating. It's meant to kill you. And normally speaking, if you're getting crucified, you're losing your life as a loser on public display for everyone to see. And it's very hard at that point when you look at someone who's being crucified with their, with their strength slowly ebbing away, it's hard to make an argument that that person might be winning anything. In fact, that's how the crowd mocked Jesus when he's on the cross. Their words, almost exactly. They say, Lord, if you are Lord, go on, get yourself down off the cross. What are you doing there if you are the king you say you are? Come down, we'll believe you. They don't get it. But this is what Jesus is praying for. Father, let them see my glory. Let people see and understand what I'm doing and that is actually glorious. And unless the Father answers this prayer of Jesus here and opens people's eyes and helps them to see Jesus' glory, they're not going to get it. Let me read to you a longer reading from another part of the Bible that's about this very thing. The letter 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about this very thing. And like I say, it's a longer reading. Please turn there and read with me if you have a Bible close by and you can turn quickly. I purposely didn't put a bookmark in, so it'll take me a while to find it and it gives you time to find it too. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start reading at verse 18. Or you can listen on if you'd like to. One Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, uh, sorry, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are nothing to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It wasn't an accident that Jesus timed his entry into Jerusalem. He let himself get arrested and he timed everything so that he was crucified the same night that the Jews would celebrate Passover. He's trying to help them have a context for understanding the significance of what he's doing. Now, Passover is the major Jewish religious festival that commemorates Israel's escape as a nation from slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus in the Old Testament records uh, the ten plagues that God inflicts Pharaoh with before Pharaoh lets Israel go free. And the last plague was the final kicker that forced Pharaoh's hand. You might remember all the turning water into blood, making frogs and darkness and hail and all the other plagues that God afflicted Egypt with were only temporarily effective. The clincher was this last plague where God would send his destroying angel to kill every single firstborn child in every house. Exodus 12. But the community of Israel, what God asked them to do was for each household to take a lamb and to kill it and to paint some of its blood on the door, posts, door frames of their house and to stay inside the house. And when God comes through Egypt to kill all the firstborn, as he sees the blood of the lamb painted on the door frame of a house, he'll pass over that house and anyone inside is spared. That's why they called it Passover. And it became a lasting ordinance and symbol they repeated year to year to remember God's salvation. Every year at Passover, you sacrifice a lamb and you remember how its blood, its death, covered for your ancestors. It's no accident that Jesus times this letting himself be arrested and him being crucified 
to be on the exact night of Passover, so that as every Jewish family sacrifices their lamb that night and have on their mind that salvation, so on the hill outside, Jesus will be the real sacrificial lamb. And his blood is what will really keep them safe and turn aside the judgment of God. The lamb dies so that no one else has to. Now, whatever Jesus' executioners were thinking when they nailed him to the cross is nothing compared to the role they were actually playing in God's script. The soldiers might have thought they were lifting a troublemaker up on a cross. They're lifting Jesus up to show how wretched and weak they can make somebody before they die. But God is lifting up his son as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. God is lifting Jesus up and exalting him, showing everybody in that moment just how strong and loving and glorious that Jesus is, that he would sacrifice himself and die for us, for our sin. And in this, Jesus gives eternal life to those who would accept it. Look at verse 2 and 3. John 17, 2 and 3. Jesus says, For you granted authority over you granted me authority over all people, that I might give eternal life to all those you've given me. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Somebody should have told Achilles and the other ancient Greeks that the secret of eternal glory isn't getting people to write epic poetry about you. Sure, you can try to leave a legacy and have a reputation and have a lovely headstone at a cemetery somewhere. But eternal life is only found in knowing Jesus. Eternal life is with God the Father who made you and who sustains every single fiber of your being. There is no greater security than to be adopted into his family. To have life to the full with him forever. And it's only possible because of what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. Now, if you're sitting here in this room today and you, you're someone who, when you look at the cross, your response is, to worship. That's only possible because God has let you in on his perspective. And that is no small miracle. That you know God the Father, that you own and you trust in what Jesus has done for you, that is life eternal. And you could do a whole lot worse than to keep having your eyes fixed on Jesus. Remembering his glorious cross. If our attention was more often on the glory of the cross of Christ, if that stayed with us all week, if we did communion, at least in our minds and our hearts, more and more often, and we remembered, wouldn't that change us for the better? Wouldn't we be less humble? No, we'd be more humble. We'd be less proud. We'd, we might copy his obedience more and stray less into sin. We might learn to be more generous and less self-focused. I think that would be good for us and everybody who knows us. 
I think would care less about our reputation and our own glory, which might just free us up to get on with whatever it takes to grow God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom is what's going to last into eternity. Too many people in Pennant Hills and too many people in Eastwood, too many people everywhere. Too many still can't see the glory that we see when we look at Jesus. So we've got work to do for Jesus' sake and for theirs. Amen.